one of the great and faithful Bible teachers of my lifetime gave an odd answer about Christians and gay weddings. I want to talk about that. Of course, though, we will start with a little bit of election and politics update on the Corey Act Show. One week ago tonight, I recorded in the evenings, me, I was on here saying, it's very important that this primary continue in case something happens to the front runner, and we need to have some kind of backup plan for the rightists uh, and just in case you know the front runner dies or gets indicted, or not, not indicted, gets convicted or something like that. One week later, Ron DeSantis said, no, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not staying in. We're all just going to consolidate behind one guy. And uh, I'm talking to you one night before the New Hampshire primary that maybe Nikki Haley will win. Uh, but it looks like everyone's just consolidating behind the front runner. I want to talk about that some and uh, just a little bit of an outlook for the year. Won't spend too much time on it. I want to talk about this. Alistair Begg is one of my favorite Bible teachers, and he gave an odd answer about Christians going to gay weddings I want to respond to. And there is a debate in my state about the role of the state government in feeding kids during the summer and using the school lunch program for meals. I want to tell you about... Uh, not an interaction I had on Twitter, but just some things I saw on Twitter and some things I uh, was thinking about regarding the state, that lunch program, and people trying to use the Bible poorly. We'll do that and maybe a little bit more because you never know what pops into my head along the way on this week's Corey Truax Show. Welcome to it. Glad you're here. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Threads. You can also email the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. Also get me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Threads with content, responses. You can do that on Spotify as well. There's always a comment section that I try to review from time to time. So however you want to get back to the show, I would love to hear from you. Let's do this political update. Everyone just consolidated. I can see I can see both the forces that caused it and then I can see the motivations as to why. Well, you know what we'll call this episode? The Trump consolidation. We'll name it like a a Big Bang Theory episode. They always had those kinds of titles. This is the Trump Consolidation. What I think DeSantis saw is what I'm seeing and a little bit surprised by. There's just a lot of demand for that guy. I don't get it. I don't get the appeal. But there's just such high demand. I think DeSantis said it that way on his video dropping out. He just realized a majority of Republican voters want to give Donald Trump another shot. And I don't think you could... You're not going to talk them out of it. Trump people are just very Trump people. I would love to know what it is. I don't know any real hardcore Trump people, so I, don't, I can't. I can't ask. I, I can only try to derive what I'm seeing. And it's probably lots of things that make Trump so durable and so desired by this group of people. I think my number one theory is the factor that animates most of American politics and that is hatred and fear of the enemy. People aren't generally motivated by getting to do good new things in policy. We're more motivated by just stopping the people that we, that we fear or we don't like from advancing their policy. And Trump's, I think for a lot of these people, is a symbol of that. He's a symbol of signaling to powerful media corporations and left-wing politicians, we hate your guts, and we will swing whatever hammer we have to at you because we know you hate our guts. 
and you'll swing whatever hammer you have to at us. And so we're just going to get in a big old swinging hammer bite, or, or, ha, excuse me, swinging hammer fight, and see how it goes. So it's that's I think the force behind it. There's just there's enough demand for him that nothing is going to stop that. And so now there's consolidation. Now behind him, it is almost embarrassing to me. People who are obviously just posturing for various positions. Like, Tim Scott's done being a senator. I think he's bored with it, and so he's just uh, immediately coming out here to endorse Donald Trump. After, by the way, he was put in the Senate by Nikki Haley. She appointed him to fill out a term, I think, that when Jim DeMint left. And then, you know, once you're appointed, you tend to win. And he went with, he went with Trump because he desperately wants to be vice president or maybe head of something. Secretary of fill-in-the-blank. Commerce, uh Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, something something of that sort. There's some trade, maybe ambassador to something. There's some trading going on here, I'm sure. And all these guys that want to be vice president, they're going to be offering these endorsements. They know they have an incredibly lush setup. You have this very unique situation of having a president who can't run again. He's constitutionally bound from or banned from it. You can only be president for two terms. And so where you're uh, George H.W. Bush in the 80s, when Reagan is winning, you have to wait eight years to maybe be the heir apparent. Uh, Things were so sour at the end in 2016 with the Obama administration, Biden didn't even want to give it a shot back then. But usually vice president is your way to become president. And man, what a cool situation to be in. You only have to be vice president for four years. And if it goes well, then you're really well set up to not have to run through a primary because people will just defer to you as the heir apparent. That's why they're all fighting for it. I'd be interested to see who ends up getting that. The uh, candidate that is still technically in the race, Nikki Haley, I will say of her, she is clever. She's a political, shrewd operator. While I don't think she is going to be in the cabinet or chosen as, as vice president if Trump happens to win, she's so careful in her criticisms. It's, it's things like, he's old, he has a lot of baggage. He's dramatic. We need something new, a new generational leadership, which is just tepid enough that it's not super offensive to Trump people. Although, to Trump people, if you're, unless you're just giving him obeisance, you're worshiping him, they, are, they don't like you. You're an enemy if you do not worship their, their God with them. But she's clever. She keeps herself alive in all places and all opportunities by choosing her criticisms very carefully. So that's the situation. It's now big consolidation behind the former president. I'm now just going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm speaking for me and me alone. None of the places that I have a position. This is just now Corey. You know, for that matter now, I'm not even talking for his radio. This is just me in a bedroom in my house. In about a month, the primary is going to come here in South Carolina. And I'm just going to vote for Nikki Haley in a quixotic effort um, and knowing that she, it's just kind of like a protest vote because I can't can't stand uh, Donald Trump personally. I also don't think he's a good standard bearer for conservatism. Forget about Christianity for a minute because he's a God-hating pagan who will be running against another God-hating pagan in November. But he's not a good standard bearer for even these conservative ideas, most of which derive from a Christian worldview. He's not good at either one. I don't think he's very effective. And so I'll cast a protest vote coming up here in uh, the primary. And then 
for the third presidential cycle in a row. Uh, I voted for Evan McMullen, now regrettably, in 2016. Didn't vote for president at all in 2020, and I'll do something similar coming up in 2024. It, to, to build that out some, just I'm not going to do what I did back in 2016. I was mean, and I railed against stuff in 2016. I don't want to go back and do that. I'm just going to say Trump is just still who he is. Time passing has not matured him or built his character. He is who he is. Chaotic is a is a very kind kind word uh, in comparison to the other words you could use. I remember back in 2016 when it was more of a war. I used this particular scripture often. I don't remember it off top of hand, but I'm just going to point you that direction and then I'll leave it alone. There's no reason to harp on it. Back back then I would quote. 1 Timothy 3 or 2 Timothy 3, can't remember which one right now. It's a, uh, a list of qualities, and it was things like uh, false accusers and people who break promises, uh, despisers of good, and uh, having a form of godliness, and denying the power, some stuff like that. And then it, it, it ends with uh, avoid such people. I... I used to read that just say, basically, you're just looking for a list of this person's characteristics. Just look right there. 2 Timothy 3, whatever it is, you'll see the former president's character on display in the scriptures. And I just, I I get the argument, by the way. I understand my brothers and sisters who make a different decision. Uh, But that'll be what I do coming up in the primary and uh, and also in in the general. I would also say this. I said this a couple weeks ago. There has never in my life been a better time for a third-party run. We got two dudes who, when they're finished with their terms, will be 86 and 83. It, it, now, especially with people like me, we don't have a, like a true pro-life candidate. Trump was pro-life transactionally, but even trying to you, – you see it. You're going to see it more and more as this campaign goes by. He knows the issue is a loser, and he's already pulling back from – being a, a pro-life person. I, I remember, I know no one else does, in 2016, when he's trying to win over some log cabin Republicans, that dude's waving around a pride flag. He's actually the first, he, he was the first person to become president while holding the position that there should be gay marriage. That was not Obama's uh, position when he became president in 09. It was Trump's when he became president in 17. So I got... Uh, I got two elderly dudes who are not pro-life or not good uh, good for the cause of the insane sexual revolution we have been part of. For that matter, they were both pro-shut down the planet. Like you don't you don't have a uh, like exiles in Babylon situation or folks trying to get out of Egypt. This is basically Pharaoh of Egypt versus who ran Babylon? Nebuchadnezzar? I don't remember. Uh, is, this is like Pharaoh versus Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> That's what she got. Like, there's an, uh, there's openings everywhere here for third parties, and I I'm telling you, there's there's just got to be one this time, and I suspect suspect there might there might be a really well funded one with these uh, no labels people. That, and depending on that shape, that might not even be supportable for my estimation. Uh, a couple of other things I wrote, wrote down here that I just I want to say as we talk about presidential politics, and I'm almost finished. Just always remember, the presidency is less important than you think it is. I, I give the illustration all the time, but if you just think about the people who have been president in my lifetime, how wildly different they are, and how much they 
only a little changed your life, this is something to keep in mind. Keep your anxiety level down. Keep your anger level down. The, the thing I, d- I want you to avoid are things like this. I actually wrote down three. Uh, this is about some context. People who were DeSantis people on Twitter who are now saying, All you, everybody's got to get on board. Get behind Trump. And it's things like, uh, I saw this one woman who said to another woman, listen, sister, unless you want to be sitting next to me in the gulag, <laughs> you better get on board. And I hope she's being funny, but a lot of these people aren't. That's actually what they see. What they see in the future, if Trump doesn't win, is concentration camps, and they're going to be in them. I don't, I don't want you doing that. That's, that's, I'll just say silly. That's silly. We don't want to do that. The, uh, I saw a lot of people with the phrase, it's time to save our country. All right, well, if you think what's going to happen in November this year is going to save your country, can I ask you why what you did in November of 2016 didn't? And why what you did in November 2000, of 2000 didn't and 2004 didn't? I mean, why, why do you keep thinking these outcomes are going to save your country? It's, it's important, but not nearly as important as you think it is. I had, uh, saw one tweet that was, I wrote this one down. I'm feeling the dread that our country missed its last opportunity for survival. Whew. Talk about putting your trust in, in princes. That's one of the scriptures in the Old, Old Testament. Just a warning. Don't put your trust in horses, that's military, or princes, politicians. And there's a lot of folks out there that had their trust there, and it's miserable. I don't want you there. Uh, but it does look like the American right has come around their candidate earlier than ever before, earliest in my lifetime. And so, hey, guys, it's campaign season. We got a 10-month campaign season. Yeah, so keep your sanity, and uh, it's going to be it's gonna be just fine. Uh, as a election preview, I, mean, I don't like the guy, but I will admit he's got some decent political instincts. He's already moving center to left on lots of things. Uh, the guy called abortion the heartbeat bills. He called them terrible. That's that's not my position. I think heartbeat bills are awesome, and I want to I want to go further. But he knows that there's a liability there, and the guy's very transactional. Um, and he he also knows he's got dedicated people, so he can go ahead and moderate his language on like abortion, because he knows his people aren't willing to melt away. They'll stick with him no matter what. And he'll start trying to make those kinds of of deals with the people he's got to win, which is, as I've uh, said many times, but I'll give you the formulation, and we are done with politics. Well, at least we're done with election 2024 politics. The the entire thing comes down to suburban women, mostly married, who show up to vote. They almost always show up to vote. They've got big turnout numbers, and ultimately it'll be suburban, high to mid-income women outside of Phoenix, Scottsdale, Arizona, those two cities in Arizona, uh, Pittsburgh and Philadelphia in Pennsylvania, Milwaukee in Wisconsin, and Atlanta, all those Atlanta suburbs, basically that. They're going to show up one way or the other. They They don't like their financial situation, so they don't like Biden. They know what it's costing them to go to the grocery store and how the... The, the bank accounts are suffering in our current economic situation. And so in that way, they're not a, they're not a big fan of, of Biden. Although a lot of those women, including women who show up to church on Sunday, uh, they 
they tend towards being a pro pro board. They they like laws that are more permissive in an abortion, so they they like that part. They don't like their financial situation. They don't like Trump personally because he's not easy to like. But there's a functionality. There's again transactionalism of just wanting their kids' school not to cost so much and groceries not to cost so much and be able to keep more of their money as they plan and prepare for the future. So that group shows up no matter what. They went for they actually went for Trump over Hillary in 16, but they went for Biden over Trump in 20. So that group's important. And then out, those are the suburbs, but in the heart of the city, it's a turnout game. Your your black voters show up in big numbers. It's huge, and you might be a win for Biden or whoever the Democrat nominee is. And if they don't show up, it's not their, it's not they ever show up and vote for the Republican. But if they don't show up in big numbers, that is usually the race. And that's what I have for you on 2024 election. Let's bring it closer to home, and then we will finish with this Alistair Begg controversy. I saw on Twitter this, uh, this press conference happening in Columbia at the State House, and it said, I think the optics are so bad, it said, uh, feed our kids on the podium, feed our kids, which is an odd command for, for me. It'd be one thing if it said, we should feed children or feed the hungry children. Let's, let's, let's feed the hungry children. But just the, d- the demand, the imp- well, what's that? The sentences are called the interrogatives or questions, imperatives. Yeah, telling you what, yeah, what, what to do. Uh, the imperative phrase, feed our kids. And it's just a bunch of politicians up there. To which you just want to say back to them, no, you do it. I'm not feeding your kids. You should feed your kids. But anyway, that was this very bad piece of optics. And then I, I saw, uh, these are left-wing politicians, by the way, and they are doing a press conference about a summer program in South Carolina uh, that apparently will send kids into the schools in the summer to get their meals. And uh, someone named Heather Bauer, she is a Democrat from, I believe, the Midlands, so around Columbia, she tweets, I can't believe we have to say this. We should feed hungry children. That is very interesting to me. I tweeted to her. She didn't respond. I mean, I am just curious, as a matter of worldview, how do you know that? How did you come to the worldview determination, we, whoever we is, we should feed hungry children? I'm, of course, I'm anti-children being hungry. I want all the kids to have the three meals and snacks in between. I, I I hate the idea of a hungry kid. I think about... My nephews and I mean, there's not a time they didn't want a snack. They weren't going to get one. I, I I want that for every child. Of course, what I do. If you don't want that, if you want, I, I wouldn't even I, I wouldn't assume that I'm my worst enemy. We all want kids to be fed. But I wonder that that worldview you're putting forth. We, the state government, through schools, we should feed hungry children. You're, you're making some assumptions there. You're making assertions without making arguments. Because who, who's responsible to feed the hungry kid? Well, certainly first, their parents are responsible. A parent who is incapable would then turn directly to the federal government through the school. Excuse me, the state government through the school. The next option wouldn't be a family member or a local food bank or a church. That's not... That would be the other options. What, what worldview are you using to say we, the state government, through schools, should feed hungry children? 
And for that matter, the morality of it. You're, what morality are you using to determine that we are responsible? And I got a response from somebody that wasn't heard that basically said, well, the quote was, the Bible says to feed the children. I, I guess. I mean, that's a, uh, that's a little derivative. Maybe you could build it. But well, the Bible says to read, uh, to, to feed the children. Okay, so that's kind of what I was trying to get from Heather Bauer, the state house rep. Are you using a Christian ethic? Are you saying kids are hungry, Jesus fed hungry people, let's be like Jesus, and feed the kids? Because if you are saying that, which I they are, I, mean, I listened to the press conference, they had a lot of that kind of language. Are you, can I ask, are you, are you doing Christian nationalism? Are you out on the snuff here arguing, we got to feed the hungry kids? Why? Well, because the Bible tells me so. Because our, our Christian ethics and our Christian standards tell me we need to be doing that. Well, now I'm very confused. Because I was reliably informed that if you would try to assert biblical thinking on any given topic, then you are a dangerous Christian nationalist, and you must be rejected outright. I'm just trying to illustrate. Can you see how the worldview is confused? They've adopted, usually secularists, they've adopted some assumptions of the post-Reformation, post-Enlightenment, Christianized world and just made the assumption these are, it's good things to be charitable. We just know it. We just know it in our bones. Well, you only know that in your bones because you grew up after the Dark Ages. There's a bunch of people on planet Earth right now that don't think what you think. You just think it's inherent to you, but it was a worldview you inherited by the philosophy surrounding you, and now you're imposing it on everyone else. The same way that you would accuse me of imposing my view on everyone else. You're just not willing to recognize your own worldview. That's all I wanted to illustrate. Was You, you see that? Even when they, they're making these arguments, I don't know how to escape it from being called a, Christ, a Christian nationalism. They're making an argument that we should do something the Bible says to do. By the way, the, the woman tweeted me and said, well, the Bible says we should do it. I tweeted back at her. So are we saying that's the standard? The standard is the Bible says we should do it. Therefore, government should do it. And she didn't respond because I think she knows where I was going. So, I would not. I would not argue that the Bible says state governments through the schools should feed the hungry kids. Uh, but I, I can tell you this: a Christianized world, a highly Christianized world, does not have hungry kids in it. It prioritizes the next generation. It deprioritizes all of the the grandeur that we all have. I mean, adults would sacrifice to make sure kids have what they need. That's I, I agree with you. I don't think kids should be hungry. And parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and neighborhoods and churches and ministries need to make sure that happens. It almost it makes me Yeah, okay, I'll do this. I don't I don't know how I don't know how to go about actually setting up a competitor to the federal government. I mentioned before, I like what this guy, Reformed Zoomer, is doing, saying we need to take back, we being uh, Orthodox Christians, need to take back the errant denominations, the PCA, PCUSA, whichever one went wonky, the Lutheran church that went wonky, because they have so many buildings and resources and money and endowments. I'll give you this. This is the example I wish I could have in South Carolina. That the Southern Baptist Convention of South Carolina would come together with, I don't know, the 
the Presbyterians that haven't gone crazy and the Methodists who haven't gone crazy and go to Henry McMaster right now and say, listen, you're, getting, you're wanting to cut this summer food program and you're getting some flack for it. We actually think it's not, a, it's not good that the state should do this. And we also don't think it should be us. We think the families should do it. But it would be better for us to do it than you guys. It's a step in the right direction because it's going to be local. So, we'll do it. We're going to take uh, whatever it is, $10 million between all, all of us, and we're going to say to the state government, as its rival, stop. We got you. And you know, Beachwood Church goes to Carolina High School, Welcome Elementary School, and asks, give us the 10 families. What, what 10 families can we help? And another church down the road says, all right, this summer, give me the 10 families that need meals, breakfast and lunch, and we'll do the grocery shopping, or maybe you do some kind of cash transfers sound risky to me because people don't spend money great when it's free money. But, you know, you need to do grocery delivery. I don't know. I don't know how to do it. But I'd love to see some kind of actual competition against the government when it comes to, you know, feeding. Because I get the bad look, too. It's not a good look to say we want to cut school meals because the the mind in America is so broken it can only it, it's only ever imagined the government no one else can help anybody how can anyone help anyone we all have to have the government do it there, so there's got to be a functional plan i didn't mean to say all this second part of this i was just saying isn't it odd that they're very comfortable secular secularists on the left making moral claims based on christianity's worldview but they are not, not okay. That they're, the claim I'm just talking about was we should feed hungry kids. Yeah, agreed. Now, I think the way you're doing it is wrong, but you're using a Christian ethic to get there. Now, when I say we shouldn't kill children in the womb, I'm doing the same thing you are. I'm making a moral statement using the same ethic or using the same source of ethics, and you call me a Christian nationalist for it. So what are, no, what are you? Speaking of Christian nationalism, and then we'll do the Alistair Beck story. Over the last couple of years, that's been a goal of mine. I don't like the word Christian nationalism, and I'm not going to use it. That's not a term I'm going to ever be friendly to. But this concept of trying to figure out how to use the law of God in modern-day settings has been an interest of mine, and it's been on the show. We've been trying to apply biblical thinking to the modern world, and sometimes that's very weird. There are laws about making sure you fill in holes that you dig or cover them up to make sure, or excuse me, to make sure they're not covered up, because if someone's beast falls into the hole that you dug and gets hurt, then you're going to need to pay recompense. Well, I, I suspect that it's not the case that someone's negligence has caused your beast to fall into a hole, and now you need to be made whole uh, because of the damage they've caused. But the modern-day analog might have happened to you, and that modern-day analog is usually getting hurt, in a, getting hurt in a car accident or getting hurt at work. I know those things are very serious. Often you lose income while medical bills are piling up. You're losing uh, those, those wages. And while you're doing that, you're trying to figure out what to do and how to get justice. It can be overwhelming, but I do not want you to be intimidated by it. There are people out there to help you. The one I want to introduce you to right now is Samuel Harms. He's a personal friend of mine. You can Google him. It's Samuel Harms, H-A-R-M-S. You can also fi- find him at 864-666-6666. Samuel Harms, attorney at law. Uh, for real, don't try to do these things at home, navigating a car accident or getting hurt at work. Get someone to help you out. Samuel Harms is here in Greenville. He's near Woodruff Road. It's 33 Market Point Drive. Greenville, South Carolina, 29607. The number is 666-6666. And so 
if you have had your modern-day beast fall into a hole, which is just getting hurt in a car accident or getting hurt at work, give Samuel Ham- Samuel Harms a call today, 864-666-6666. Let's finish here. Alistair Bag- Begg has been preaching in uh, right around Cleveland, Ohio for... 40-something years. I love Alistair Beck. I have benefited greatly from his ministry and his teaching and his preaching. Recently on like a Q&A, he was asked about going to a friend's gay wedding and wh- whether he would advise a Christian to go to the gay wedding. And Alistair Begg, this now older man in his 70s, still super sharp, biblically astute, gave a surprisingly, I want to say this respectfully, a surprisingly bad answer and argued that the the loving thing to do is to go because you don't want to affirm in their minds what they already suspect, that Christians are this stodgy, judgmental group. And so to continue, I guess, the relationship and the opportunity for evangelism, you can go to the wedding. Now, you can already tell, I think he's wrong on this like crazy. But I have two notes I want to offer. One is this. Men my age, around my age, 40 40 and unders, can I encourage you to hold your tone when you are addressing the potential error of a man 30 years your senior? Listen, I think he's wrong too. But some of the tone with which I have seen guys on Twitter go after Alistair Begg, it's disgusting. He is your elder. He is due your uh, some honor and some respect. Even in his error, he deserves your kindness. He doesn't deserve your deference. He happens to be wrong here. And listen, if you're not one of those people, I can, can you point one of those people towards this segment of the show? Just ask them to le- listen to this. Let me say it to them. Just point them my way. Guys, we ha- sometimes have to correct guys who are older than us, but the tone that we do it with is really important. It cannot be arrogant, cannot be boastful, cannot be demeaning. It's like like you're talking to a father. Listen, there are some things me and my dad disagree on. The tone I would take with him would be so deferential and respectful. It'd be earnest and humble you know, Dad, th- this is just how I'm seeing it. I-, I can see how you got where you got, but I-, I think you're in this. I think you're in error. I'm begging you to consider it, recognizing your wisdom and your years. But just consider what I'm giving you, and I'm going to consider what you're giving me. So that's one. Young dudes, careful how you talk to these guys. I'm. I can't. Uh, I'll, oh, I'll use me as an example. One of the reasons I am hesitant to say names of certain people sometimes is because they are my elder in in the church world. They are 30 and 40 years my elder. They are smart men who I think are sometimes behaving stupidly or saying unhelpful things. But man, I don't I don't want to toss their name out there and uh, start railing, railing against them. They deserve some deference and respect. I, I one time did a, a segment on the show and what is now coming up on 10 years of doing this, where I critiqued Todd Friel from Wretched Radio. And I sent it to him, not thinking he'd ever listen to it. He did. And he's had a very kind response to me. 
he thought he was still right, thought I was wrong about the issue, but had a thoughtful response he sent back. He said some kind words about my broadcasting skills and even said he was grateful for how I handled his audio, that I was not I wasn't a smart aleck to a guy who's, I mean, Todd Field's probably in his mid-60s now. At the time, I'd have been in my early 30s. There's not a time, it, was, it wasn't good. It's not good to talk to these men this way. So, uh, as we talk about it, I don't want to badmouth Alistair Begg. He's had a great ministry. But my response, if, I, if you're ever wondering, you're, you're going to be confronted with this at some point, invite, being invited to a wedding that God abhors. I want, I want to use that language. It's important. Every wedding ceremony where a man is pledging fealty to a man, pledging love to, to a man in marriage, and a woman is pledging her love to a woman in marriage, God abhors it. He hates it. He despises it. Either the sin of that marriage will be paid for through repentance and then on the cross in Jesus, or there will be people burning in hell forever for this affront to God's design on marriage. God abhors homosexual marriage. And because he does, the answer I would give you humbly to anyone in your family that's inviting you to one of those ceremonies is to say to them, maybe even with some sorrow, I can't do that. I am willing to tell you why. And then you can calmly say what I just said. You don't have to say it the way I said it. That all of my values and thinking are defined by the God of the universe as described in the Bible. And those scriptures tell me that your marriage does not honor God and that it's not even really a marriage. And I, I, can't, I can't be in support of it. I do love you individually. And one of the... Oh, that's... Hey, thank you, Lord, for bringing this verse to mind. First uh, Corinthians 13? That's probably right. First Corinthians 13, somewhere in there. It's a list of what love is like. One of them is, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. I do love you personally. And so I, the thing I can't do is rejoice in this wrongdoing. It would be wrong for me, and it would also be hateful to you because I love you. I can't rejoice in your wrongdoing. I would rejoice in the truth with you. So the, uh, Alistair Begg, Begg, I think, got that wrong. It has launched a online Twitter discussion with some Christians actually coming to his defense and saying, it is one way to keep relationships going, and so you can have the opportunity for evangelism later. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not into, into that kind of strategy. Not just not into it. I think it's unwise and would honor something God hates. That's something we don't do. We do not celebrate the things that God despises. Like, uh, you've seen things like divorce parties in the last decade. Christians, I would say that. Don't go to a divorce party. We don't celebrate divorces. God abhors, God hates divorce, and so we don't celebrate it. Even in relationships that, or in, in marriages that got very bad and miserable for people, we don't celebrate the dissolution of that which God brought together. There's other, there's other kinds of marriages. Un, there are marriages between someone professing faith, and if they are, they are in sin pursuing marriage to someone who is very clearly not a believer, and they don't claim to be a believer, I'd also say don't go to that wedding. Don't support that. Don't do that. Because marriage is so... That's There might be different lines on that one. The homosexual wedding, that's not hard in, in my estimation. It's God abhors it. Don't go. There are some unequally yoked things where I could see an argument. It's a little easier maybe to show up, but 
I would say just don't. Like we we don't celebrate the things that God God abhors. We don't celebrate the things that God forbids. And so while that discussion is out there, I thought I should at least give you some clarity on what I was thinking. And I saved myself enough time to do this last little thing I wanted to do. Guys, something's going on with Russell Brand. The guy who was married to Katy Perry. And it got me down a rabbit hole. Uh, He started to talk about Jesus. He started to talk about the importance of faith in his life. And it sent me down this rabbit hole uh, uh, of Shia LaBeouf, the actor who was in lots of things. I know him mostly from Transformers. It's terrible movies. And him saying some similar things. Which led me to a guy I follow, a, a podcaster, a guy on Twitter a lot named Zuby, who is not a Christian, but talks about how important Christ, important Christianity is. Started thinking about Ayan Hirsi Ali, this woman who was once a Muslim, who then said she was an atheist, and now says she's a Christian. I think we need to have some recognition in the secular age. People like Russell Brand, Shia LaBeouf, Zuby, Ayan Hirsi Ali, I don't know if they're actually converting to Christianity, but they are indicative of this, and they're very popular voices with a certain demographic. They're out there recognizing this secular age has fallen. It's made us miserable. The, what we've done with marriage and sex and, and governments and family, it's just it's so horrific for people. And so I think I, I, here's where I, I want us to be receptive to hearing people recognizing secularism doesn't work. And then they're going to get some stuff wrong. They're not going to be doctrinally strong. They're going to still think some things that are unbiblical, but I want us to be receptive to hear them and not toss, not toss them away because they haven't figured it all out yet. And let, 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 let us be people who are not uh, rejecting those who are trying to figure it out while also being careful not to affirm professions of faith that might be more identical, uh, excuse me, identity-based. Like Ayan Hirsi Ali, I don't think she's a Christian. She says she is. But when, you t- when she talks about her, uh, her conversion, it almost all sounds political and identitarian. She's just saying secularism doesn't work, Islam doesn't work, Christianity is the force that will thwart Islam and secularism that's destroying everyone and making everyone miserable. Well, Christianity's not a... And following Jesus is not a function, I guess. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a strategy for Western civilization. Uh, Jesus is not the strategy of making the world better. He is king. And if we follow the king, yeah, the world will get better, but we first f- kneel to him, show fealty to him as king. That, that's the conversion. He's not just a system to make the world better. And so I want us to be careful on both, not to just celebrate and affirm questionable professions of faith, but also in this world where people are listening to, like, I'll give you another one, Joe Rogan is an atheist, but is getting more and more friendly talking about Christian ideas because he sees it. The world is falling apart because it has rejected its maker, rejected its maker's ways, and so people are going to start being more curious over time. I think it's a long time, but people will, and we want to be wise as serpents and, and also harmless as doves we can not affirm false conversions but be willing to associate with those that don't have it all figured out just yet. 
If you want to contact the show, CoreyTrueFShow at gmail.com, give me feedback there or on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or threads. You can find me there with other feedback. If the Lord allows, I'll be back with another new edition of the Corey Act Show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.